Welcome to this month's Conservation Conversations. I'm Sean O'Brien, the President and CEO of NatureServe, and we're excited to be in 2024 now, season four of Conservation Conversations. And I'm really excited to be kicking things off with uh, Dr. James Hung, who is an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma and the pollination biologist with the Oklahoma Biological Survey and Oklahoma Natural Heritage Inventory. And of course, that last thing is the part that's most important to me because NatureServe is the hub of this natural heritage network all across the continent. And uh, James is one of the people that we're always bragging about when we talk about how we have the world's experts in the biodiversity of our continent. And so we're gonna hear a little bit more about uh, James's expertise. So welcome to the show, James. Thanks for having me, super excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased to have you on the show. Um, we met a few months ago when I was visiting Oklahoma, uh, my first time in Oklahoma, it was really great. And uh, it was so fun to just sort of be actually really close to an urban area, but in a natural area near the urban area and just see the, the incredible diversity that was there in this little sort of grasslandy area. And uh, one of the things we didn't talk about there, but we did see were a number, well, we did talk about the things we saw, but we saw some bees and things. Um, and subsequently, I have come to learn from uh, listening to you in other settings, what is a bee? And I hadn't really thought about it before, but it's just so interesting because the definition of a bee was very surprising. So tell us what 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 makes a bee? Yeah, a bee is a group of vegetarian wasps that have switched from either hunting prey or parasitizing um, a host to eating pollen for their diet. And the way you can recognize a bee from a similar looking wasp is by looking for branched hairs on its body. So if you have an insect in the hand and you don't know if it's a bee or a wasp, slide it under the microscope and look for hairs on its body that have branches like a feather. So and <laughs> many people will say you're crazy because I'm not putting a bee in my hand or a wasp to get that close to it. <laughs> but um, how often can you see that without going to the microscope? I think, um, especially for the larger specimens, if you look at it, and not only does it look fuzzy, but the fuzz looks velvety. Um, that's kind of how the light scatters when it hits hair that is branched, as opposed to hair that is um, just kind of a solid shaft. Yeah. So I think it's so interesting to describe them as vegetarian wasps, because um, there may be vegetarians, but many of those bees will still uh, pack a punch. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So you're clearly, based on my time in the field with you and listening to you talk, uh, passionate about pollinators. Um, how did this get come about? Did something happen where you were just like, oh, I just love pollinators or what, you know, what was the what was the inspiration? Yeah. May I take you all the way back to kindergarten? Oh, please. <laughs> so um, I used to tell people that I had ADHD but I've since changed that because I still have ADHD. It's a condition that I um, that I struggle with, but I also try to use to my advantage on a daily basis in, in my work, in my personal life. And when you are a small child with ADHD attending um, pre-kindergarten level two in Taiwan, which is about age three or four, um, mm -hmm. at the time when Taiwan was still a very patriarchal, very rigid system, um, 
you get in a lot of trouble with school teachers. And my parents had to switch me to several different kindergarten classrooms to find a teacher that was okay with the way kind of I approached the world. Um, and finally, they found a teacher who was like, hey, this kid is not, you know, malicious. He's not being destructive because he likes breaking things. He just has too much energy and not enough stuff to apply his attention to. So she sent me outside into the schoolyard to look at insects and to report back to her Mm. Uh, what the insects were doing because Taiwan is a tropical country. Uh, the Tropic of Cancer runs straight, uh, straight through the middle and I lived in the southern half, so in the true tropics. So there were all sorts of great insects just doing all sorts of things in our little schoolyard, even though it was a pretty urban area. Um, so that's how I fell in love with insects. And ever since then, I've known that I wanted to grow up to be someone who studied insects um, for life. And so um, kind of just reared insects, collected them, studied them on my own um, all the way into college where I was uh, fortunate to join a lab that focused on pollinator conservation and uh, pollination biology. And my senior year, I wanted to do a senior thesis, but I was getting married my junior summer and I couldn't be out in the field collecting data. And uh, fall in Hanover is not a great time to be studying insects because it got cold really fast. And they just happened to have um, specimens left over from a pitfall trap study. And this happened in a year where there was a significant drought in San Diego. And lots of bees actually fell into those pitfalls that were meant to catch ground-dwelling arthropods for, um, for analyzing um, the availability of food for breeding birds, I believe. So there were all these samples just archived there. So here's a lesson to everyone who studies entomology. If you collect a lot of stuff that you don't need, if you archive it, maybe some undergraduate student will come by and make a thesis out of it and build an entire career on the stuff that you didn't even mean to collect. Um, so I did my senior thesis um, sorting bees out from those uh, bycatch pitfall samples and just fell in love with bees. Um, they were, they're just tremendously beautiful animals. And as we all know, they have, they're tremendously important ecologically. And I think I was also very fortunate to be riding that crest of the pollinator conservation kind of um, awareness of this conservation issue around pollinators and ecosystem services that they provide. Um, so um, I've had a very fortunate career to be um, focusing on this very important group that's now receiving a lot of support from many different sectors of life. Right. So you've said a couple of things in there. I want to just reflect on one is I often ask people about their inspiration and it's always interesting how often it comes back to a teacher and it's really um, heartening that teachers are so important to people's lives and their careers because we need more people going into teaching and being excited about being teachers and the, and taking pride in that role. Um, so thank you, teachers, for inspiring James and so many of the people who've been on this program. Yes, uh, thank you, teachers. Yeah. Um, and you have children who have teachers now, and you're hoping that they get inspired teachers, inspiring teachers as well. Absolutely. Um, so you also talked about pollinators and how they're getting attention. Um, why do pollinators matter? What, what does it mean to pollinate and why? How does that help nature and humanity? Yeah. So if you're a plant, one of the biggest issues you have is for most plant species, wherever your seed landed, that's where you are. You can't really get up and go around to find a mate, whereas um, you still have this need to combine your genetic material with a partner in order to um, in order to, to uh, mix up your DNA, um, at least 
the majority of plant species out there do engage in this process. There are some plants that uh, will self-fertilize or will clone themselves into seeds, but uh, oftentimes those processes are seen as evolutionary dead ends because you um, basically pigeonhole yourself into mm. kind of one set of genes yeah. and um, you can't you don't have many processes through which to diversify. Um, so um, a large portion of the plants out there, uh, in fact, I think 85% of the, of the flowering plant species are thought to use animals to help them move their pollen from one individual to another so that they can exchange their genetic material. So to pollinate is to, is to take this pollen, this mobile component of the plant's uh, life cycle and bring it to, um, to the flower, to the receptive structure of another plant so that a seed can form from the union of two parents. Right, so it's sort of a, a version of sex in a way. Basically, that's right. Male and female plants materials are getting brought together through the action of a third party. <laughs> that's bit. right. Um, so you just said 85% and so some species are wind pollinated, so they don't depend on animals. And by animals, uh, we know from talking to uh, Winifred Frick from Bat Conservation International that that can be bats. Mm -hmm. We also know that many birds, uh, hummingbirds in particular, are good at pollinating, but most of the pollination is done by insects, right? That's right. As far as we know, um, there are some groups of plants, like you mentioned, that have evolved specifically to be most efficiently pollinated by hummingbirds or by bats. But in our experience, most of those plants that attract these large vertebrate pollinators will still get visited and will still get serviced. Um, by insect pollinators, especially those that are uh, very generalized. Um, by that, I mean just very unchoosy in terms of what kinds of plants they would go to. Um, a lot of pollinators out there, um, if it has some sort of nectar, if it has a pollen that they can they can get out of the floral structure, they'll go for it. So bees get a lot of credit for being great pollinators. And there's other insects that are involved in pollinating. Of course, most of us are aware that butterflies and moths are part of that uh, equation. So what else, what other insects are involved in pollinating? Yeah, absolutely. It's not only these big, beautiful, charismatic insects like bees and butterflies. Um, a lot of beetles are pollinators as well. In fact, uh, it is thought that beetles were some of the original pollinators that um, spread pollen for um, ancient plants like cycads, uh, for example. Um, the majority of fly species out there are probably pollinators as well, because as adults, um, many of the species consume only liquid. Um, actually, in fact, uh, as adults, all fly species consume liquid uh, substances. And what's easier to suck than sweet nectar that plants produce? So um, the majority of flies out there that feed as adults will at least opportunistically land on a flower and collect nectar from them. So um, if we're thinking about the diversity of pollinating insects out there, um, you know, the vast majority of uh, butterfly and moth species will feed on nectar as adults. Um, the vast majority of the order Hymenoptera, so bees, wasps, ants, uh, the members of that order that fly, they will feed on nectar as adults, at least to fuel their own metabolic needs and large portions of uh, beetles and flies as well. So the number of pollinating insect species probably number up close to uh, close to a million um, based on projected uh, diversity of undiscovered insect species out there. Wow, that's amazing. So I want to talk about the sort of most famous pollinator out there. But first, I want to mention that uh, recently NatureServe did a study on flower flies and their role in pollination. 
And uh, people can find that on our website. It's uh, pretty interesting reading. Um, but so really the pollinator that steals all of the attention is uh, actually not native to North America, right? This is the European honeybee. And we talk a lot about bees in general. Um, and I think people conflate thinking about the bees that are native to here and live often solitary lifestyles and other things compared to the classic honeybee with the beehives that we see everywhere. So tell us a little bit about uh, honeybees and what's what's going on with them. Yeah, so honeybees, like you just mentioned, they're not native to North America, at least the species we have now. I believe there's one fossil record of this thing called Apis nearctica. Um, I think it was just like partial fragments of an insect that's clearly a honeybee in the North American fossil record. So it's possible that we had a species here at some point, but it doesn't seem to be, you know, super widespread in our continent. So it's probably safe to say that for a millennia, we haven't had an insect like the honeybee in our continent. Um, and it wasn't until um, the last few hundred years that European settlers have brought the honeybee over to here. And when we ask people to um, imagine a bee, I think a lot of times the insect that they picture is a honeybee, right? It's a uh, strikingly um, black, yellow, brown, orange striped insect that lives in these huge colonies with hundreds of thousands of workers and one queen and everybody works super hard to, to store massive amounts of food and uh, everybody defends the colony um, with great vengeance and uh, every worker you know, that stings a human will die because the stings get pulled out. Um, but that life history really is very uh, unique. In fact, no other bee species in North America lives a life like that. So, Sean, as you just mentioned, um, the majority of the North American species we have here um, are solitary. Um, they generally um, dig a burrow in the ground by themselves or find a cavity in um, in an old branch or on a tree trunk that's left over by some other uh, drilling insects. And every female makes her own nest. Um, and she usually doesn't stay, uh, stay around long enough to uh, survive to see her eggs even hatch and the larvae uh, come out. Of course, there are some exceptions to that. So uh, bumblebees, for example, are a great example of a group where uh, they do live in a social colony where a queen will found a nest and um, rear her first few offspring kind of as a hardworking single mom until these uh, first few offspring reach adulthood and then they can start helping out around the house and the queen can just kind of stay home, um, stay home and, and focus on rearing more offspring. Well, that's interesting. I did not know that about bumblebees. Um, that's pretty cool. Uh, so we um, are seeing an increase in numbers of things at uh, nurseries and at, uh, stores where you can buy these bee houses with all of these like tubes in them. And uh, what what kind of bees are those attracting? Those are generally attracting members of the leafcutter bee family, the megachylidae, and uh, the mo most members of that group will use leftover cavities uh, in wood by different insects that drill them. And what's really cool is because they don't excavate their own house, uh, their own nest, they have to bring in furniture from the outside. That's why they cut leaves. Um, some, some cut leaves, some use petals, some scrape fuzz from plants and weave kind of a, like a, a pillow cover style bag to put their pollen and nectar inside. Um, and I think that's really cool that, uh, that these devices are becoming more and more available because it's really teaching people that there are different bees out there and that the everyday person 
can um, contribute in some way to the conservation of our native pollinators um, in a way that is not just, well, that is distinct from supporting the beekeeping industry, which is, of course, honeybees are um, facing all sorts of, of troubles, but that's really a, an animal husbandry and agriculture sector problem and not a conservation problem. Right. So that's so interesting. Um, I do love that idea. And I have uh, a couple of uh, bee houses at my uh, at my house um, that I'm hoping this year will uh, attract some some residents. Uh, so that's pretty. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so what's so interesting, because you were talking about this moment in time for pollinators uh, at NatureServe, um, we've seen a huge increase in the amount of data and information in our uh, database on pollinators all across the country. Um, and we've been updating their conservation status ranks. And you were talking about um, conservation issues. What are the biggest challenges for bees in particular when it comes to conservation? I think. The same things that threaten bees are the processes that threaten the majority of insects in terrestrial ecosystems, and that is the loss of their habitat. I think bees are potentially particularly vulnerable to some of these stressors because um, bees are very specialized animals. Um, there's uh, in in any given ecosystem, at least here in North America, there's somewhere between um, like a fifth to a third of species that will forage only for pollen from one plant family. And some of them are even choosier than that. They'll only go to one plant genus or even one plant species. So here in Oklahoma, for example, um, we have these gypsum outcrops. And on there, there, there is this little plant called Nama. And uh, I believe there are two different species of Nama here in Oklahoma. And on each of these Nama species, there is a specialist bee. And in places where the, the two Nama species co-occur, the bees know which one is which, and they don't go to the other one. Uh, so that's how specialized some of these uh, bees could be. Now, if their host plants, uh, the, the plants that they depend on for pollen, are wiped out from uh, an ecosystem because of development, because of climate change, because of pollution, um, that bee is going with it, no mm -hmm. question asked. Um, even bee species that are a little bit more generalized and would be willing to accept pollen from um, multiple different plant families. Sometimes they're still specialized in terms of what time of the year they are active. So here, one of the earliest spring active bees is um, the unequal cellophane bee. It's this big, beautiful bee with striking white bands. Um, it's one of the first pollinating insects to emerge from their winter slumber. And they really heavily depend on early blooming shrubs um, like red buds, like native plums. Um, I think they do use some of the, in fact, I know that they, they also use some of the uh, ornamental plant species that also kind of bloom uncharacteristically early uh, for this part of the world. Um, but you can imagine that if there's a, a very bad year for whatever reason, maybe um, some unseasonable frosts or uh, ice storm events kill a lot of these uh, trees or shrubs that are getting ready to bloom. And I, I witnessed this in some of the local parks around our home. Uh, redbud is a pretty hardy plant, but when you get conditions just right, you can kill the whole year's worth of blossoms. Um, as these events become more and more frequent with climate change, um, even the bees that have a wider tolerance of different kinds of um, food plants from which they get their pollen, they could be in trouble if they can't shift their season of activity to uh, accommodate a shifted blooming time. 
of yeah. their host plants. So that's a really interesting point. Um, the effects of climate change on uh, bees and other pollinators. We know we see this with birds where birds may migrate based on different cues then the plants decide to bloom. And so you can get a mismatch of bird migration with food availability. And it sounds like this could happen with pollinators as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is one of the areas that have received the most attention in terms of how um, bees specifically could be impacted by climate change. Now, we've talked a lot about bees. Um, we've talked a little bit about some other pollinators. Um, and I want to talk to you about uh, something very exciting that you told me about in your lab and I got to see in person. Um, and I'm sorry that everybody listening won't be able to necessarily see this, but you had a very exciting uh, field day not long ago. So tell, tell us a little bit about what happened and what you discovered. Yeah, so here in Oklahoma, we have these two um, really interesting places. Um, and one of them is Little Sahara State Park. So just by listening to the name, um, you know, it evokes images of the Sahara Desert. And if you're there, you crouch low enough, it looks like the Sahara Desert. It's these giant um, mobile dunes with just no vegetation on them. But there's very few places like that in uh, in Oklahoma. And we got we got there, we, you know, we're just like wowed by the landscape and went, went around collecting collecting our bees. And it wasn't until we got back to the lab and um, processed these specimens and looked at them under the scope that I said, wow, this thing is, you know, um, very interesting looking. It's keying out to a species that I've never heard of before. Um, and, um, you know, I logged that in my database. And then when I was uh, reporting to uh, my fellow heritage biologists about the things I have, I started looking up their nature surf ranks to see, you know, are these species that we need to um, request nature surf to add to the database? Because um, as you know, the database is constantly growing as biologists uh, get more and more species into their own databases. And this species showed up as being ranked GH, which is um, known only from historical samples or um, deemed possibly extinct. And I went, whoa, this is really exciting. Um, the last time it was seen was um, many, many, many years ago, I think in the 1960s. Um, and so I was like, wow, you know, how likely is it that I've just actually rediscovered something that's deemed possibly extinct? So I sent uh, my two specimens to um, some colleagues who are world authorities on North American members of the leafcutter bee genus. Um, and they compared their specimens with um, and then very, very, uh, very fortuitously, uh, these two colleagues are at the two institutions that um, have some of the very, very few specimens of this bee ever to be known. Um, so they were able to compare against the material. Um, and it came back, uh, well, they came back to me and said, yes, you know, this, this matches everything we know about this species. So we do have a rediscovery of a, a possibly or a presumed possibly extinct species on our hands. So um, this is my and first the name again of the species. Oh, yes. Um, this species is called Megakylie parksi. Megakylie parksi. Mm -hmm. And so it was last seen in 1965 in Texas. At some point in the way the the world works. Um, if something hasn't been seen in a certain amount of time, when NatureServe is doing reviews of uh, species, they go from being rare to being considered historical or extinct. Um, and historical is sort of like this borderline case where we haven't seen it in a long time. We maybe haven't sampled hard enough to know that we can say that it's extinct, but chances are um, it's not out there. 
and you have brought something back from extinction. Yeah, it was it was such a thrill to um, to see that uh, category on NatureServe when I when I looked it up, and then a second hit of excitement when my colleagues wrote back and said, "Yes, this matches." So for sure. And so, will you go back to Little Sahara to look and see if you can find the species again? Absolutely. Um, this is one of the species where, as far as I know, um, the description in the published literature pertains only to the female and we only have two females. So we want to go and um, try to document some males for this as well. Um, and uh, also do a, do a further study on exactly what host plants they might be foraging on um, because this species belongs to the subgenus Megachyloides and Megachyloides is the most species rich group of leafcutter bees here uh, in North America. And uh, as far as I know, half or more of the species of megachyloides are known only from one gender. So this is a very poorly studied, very uncommon group of bees um, for the most part. So um, the more we can learn about the biology of this very rare species, the better. Yeah, that's very exciting. Uh, so you have two roles. You're both a professor of biology and a pollination biologist for the Natural Heritage Program and the Biological Survey. What is the difference between those two jobs? And what does it mean in terms of like, you know, on, we think of professors as doing more academic work and people in natural heritage organizations more focused on conservation. So I'm a little bit interested in the sort of the differences between the two jobs and the overlap in the two jobs. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. And that's something that um, I personally am still trying to balance as well. Um, and I think we're fortunate that um, the, the world is viewing conservation as more and more of an important priority. And that includes people in academia. And you have these um, conservation focused publications, uh, these journals that um, have higher and higher and higher impact factors um, year after year. Um, so um, I like to believe that a lot of the more um, applied conservation work that I'm doing, for example, going out and surveying what kinds of habitats um, are suitable for uh, hosting which kinds of bumblebee species, for example, that this work uh, will not only contribute to, um, to our understanding of how we preserve biodiversity um, for pollinators in, in, kind of in my capacity, um, preserve biodiversity for our state, but also we're generating important data for understanding conservation priorities and um, guiding management and practice and policy going forward. So um, as much as I can, I'm trying to do publishable academic work while also um, collecting data that will be immediately applicable to conservation here in our state. Right. That's very cool. Um, and it's great to be able to do both and to have that, um, I think one of the great things that's happened in academic science and biology and, and ecology in particular is a recognition of and the importance of doing work that is applicable and relevant to preserving wildlife and preserving the diversity of, of life on earth. And I think that that's a, that's a great change in the past 20 or 30 years. I know when I was in grad school, um, it wasn't really part of the thinking. Hmm. Um, yeah. So one thing that we talked about uh, once before, and I want to bring come back to quickly, is uh, a lot of people are afraid of bees. They don't want to get stung, right? And you know, for legitimate reasons, it hurts, and some people are allergic. 
but you um, you would love it if more of us would take photos of bees and put those photos on iNaturalist so that you would have access to more information about all of these amazing critters out there. Uh, so tell us a little bit about how to take good pictures of bees. Yeah. So I just can I take a quick step back and just um, yeah. And I think one of the most exciting innovations um, that's helping us biologists to study um, study conservation status and um, habitat use and even natural history of all the animals and plants out there is this development of um, these community science platforms. You know, this taking advantage of um, the innate desire of humans to belong to community and to know what they're looking at when they're out and about and pairing that with the, the capacity to to um, to archive what you've seen and to have strangers on the internet come and help you with identification and building community that way. I think it's, it's just such a cool model. Um, and it really helps us as biologists because one of the biggest bottlenecks is there are so few of us who are trained to do what we do. We have limited time and we can't be everywhere at once and we can't get permits to access all the different places and habitats we want to go to. Um, but if anybody who has a smartphone or a, a digital camera or film camera, if you want, um, can go out there and just take pictures of what you're encountering in your everyday life. Um, who knows when someone is going to come across, um, you know, uh, a, spe a species that hasn't been seen for a long time or uh, a very peculiar behavior demonstrated by, um, by an organism that uh, unlocks some sort of understanding of its natural history that biologists never had the opportunity to witness. So um, I'm just super excited about um, the fact that anybody now can be a biologist uh, in their spare time just by contributing these records onto um, community science platforms like iNaturalist. You're um, absolutely right. We've had a number of experiences and we've had Scott Laurie from iNaturalist on the program. Uh, where, for instance, the range of a species was extended, which was incredibly helpful knowledge for biologists. Um, new species or species that were thought to be extinct have been discovered through iNaturalist. Um, and of course, eBird and eButterfly and a, very, a variety of other community science platforms are putting enormous amounts of data in the hands of conservation professionals and people who are making uh, management plans for landscapes. And it's really fantastic and, and wonderful that that's out there um, and becoming available for people. And it's based on largely often on photographs. That's right. Bringing that's right. That back to the question of how do I take a good picture of a bee? Yeah. So what I like to do when I see a bee on a flower is um, I try to approach slowly. Of course, um, insects have uh, insects don't have super acute vision, but they have very, very good motion sensing. Um, so I think their flicker fusion rate is something like five times as fast as, as humans um, on average. So what that means is things that look like a blur to you, um, they can see individual frames, right? Uh, so the outline cool. of my hand is not a blur to them, um, even when it is to myself. Um, so they can see and, and uh, diagnose movement very well. So approaching slowly is usually very helpful, um, especially uh, approaching um, the insect directly instead of kind of obliquely so that your outline is 
just getting bigger and not moving from one place to another in their field of view. Oh. Um, so that's just kind of step one, getting close enough. And then um, if you have a device that has a viewfinder, so either a smartphone screen or you know your your eyepiece uh, on your camera, um, the moment you can start discerning that that is an insect on a flower, I would start shooting. And I would start shooting as I get closer and closer and closer. Um, and keep shooting until the thing leaves. So what that means is when I come home from a day of shooting um, or even just a day um, in the park with my kids, um, I end up with you know 99% of the photos that I don't need um, because of, of all of this um, kind of extraneous shooting. But you never know when the thing is going to leave and you never know if, um, if a photo that you shot at uh, a barely dis discernible distance is going to be the only photo you have. Um, and you also want to keep shooting because unless you're an expert, it's going to be difficult to know exactly what body part you need in order to tell the insect apart from something that looks like it. So I have two questions left for you. One uh -huh. I meant to ask earlier. So we talked about bees being vegetarian wasps, but what's the difference between a wasp and a hornet? Oh, okay. So wasp is... Um, the general term, I think, for all members of flying Hymenoptera. So Hymenoptera is an insect order that also includes ants. Ants are a specialized group of wingless social wasps. Bees are a specialized group of vegetarian wasps. Everything else is called um, a wasp. So whether they be okay. horn tails that, um, that bore through wood, or uh, they could be tiny little parasitoids that lay their eggs inside aphids and then burst out of their body cavities like alien or um or yellow jackets that you know form these giant nests in tree trunks and have, can have you know thousands of workers so these are all uh colloquially well i guess also, these are just all called wasps hornet is a special group of wasps in the family vespidae um and as far as i know um, they are native to the old world, um, to Europe, Asia, Africa, um, with the majority of species being found in Asia. But the European hornet, uh, Vespa crabro, is um, present in large parts of the eastern half uh, of North America. And I don't know that we can we can remove it. Um, yeah. Other than those, the only insect in North America that is called a hornet is um, actually a very large and chunky member of the aerial yellow jacket family that just happens to have black and white stripes instead of black and yellow stripes. There you go. Um, dispelling the myths a little bit here. <laughs> um, so the last thing I wanted to ask you, James, is um, like you sort of already achieved one of the great goals that one can achieve, and that is essentially bringing something back from extinction. But what what would like when you're at the you know at your retirement party um, in many many decades from now? Um, what would you like to be able to say you were able to achieve? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think some of my bucket list items are um, to to describe new species, uh, species that are new to science. I've, I've now participated in uh, one such endeavor. Um, I like to do more because I just I love discovering biodiversity um, and figuring out what these what these things are, um, because we can't start conserving individual species until we know that they exist. Um, and it's difficult to conserve them until we know something about where they are, how they live their lives, and what kinds of threats they're under. Um, so I think continuing my work of biodiversity discovery um, and kind of natural history documentation is going to be important. Um, at my retirement party, 
I would love to know that um, my research has made a difference in how people approach conservation here, boots on the ground. So, um, so you know, more broad understanding that, for example, save the bees uh, means two different things. Um, one in the animal husbandry world and one in the biodiversity conservation world. And these two different needs are both important, but they, um, they're they achieved through very, very different mechanisms. And hopefully more and more people um, will choose to also pay attention to the conservation of, of native biodiversity that may or may not have anything to do with how much their almond milk will cost them. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I think just leaving behind a world where everyone knows about, loves, and appreciates our pollinators uh, is definitely a big bucket list item of mine. Yeah. Well, those are great goals. Um, you've done a couple things for me here today. One is giving me this filter of thinking about um, the honeybee problem as an animal husbandry issue. Um, I love that thought and I love, I'm looking forward to talking about that with people who talk about that as this huge problem that we're having because uh, it's very different than the biodiversity crisis. Um, we talked about the species that you rediscovered, but we did not talk about the species that you just straight up discovered um, and how exciting that is, because that's, you know, as we talk about the sixth extinction and the challenge that we're facing, you've just put one into the plus column by um, not just the, the rediscovered species, but a, a new species to science. But one of the things that uh, I've been thinking about in terms of discovering these species as well is, you know, um, on paper, I'm creating more problems than I'm solving by, <laughs> by discovering new species because now we have all these other targets to, uh, to think about. And um, if a species hasn't yet been discovered and described um, in the 21st century, chances are that they are they were already rare to start with. Um, yes. They may already have a very restricted range. So uh, my guess is that disproportionately, some of these new species um, are going to be already kind of creeping towards the um, needs conservation attention yesterday kind of type yeah. kind of species. So, um, well, James, we've been talking for close to an hour now. So I want to uh, thank you for being on the show with us and thank you for the work that you're doing. It's super, super important. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for your support of our work, um, NatureServe. Um, you know, we can't, we can't do what we're doing without, without this coordination um, that you guys provide. So we as heritage biologists are grateful to be part of this system. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, thanks to all of our listeners for listening to the uh, first episode of 2024 with Dr. James Hung. You can find uh, James's work on the uh, hungpollinatorlab.weebly.com um, or you might just Google James Hung and Oklahoma and pollinator. I think you would probably find his work. Um, and we encourage you to do that and also to uh, come to the NatureServe website and where you can read about other work being done on pollinators and at NatureServe and across the NatureServe network. And as always, we appreciate you listening. And if you're uh, so inclined, uh, giving us a positive review on whatever podcasting platform you prefer to listen on. And remember that NatureServe is a nonprofit organization and we depend on the support of uh, the great people out there who are listening and caring about the biodiversity of our planet. So please consider making a donation to support NatureServe. So thanks again for listening and thank you, James. I look forward to uh, getting out in the field with you again soon. Yeah, likewise. Thanks again for having me. Take care. Bye.